Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to say thank you to every one of you who listens. The Lincoln Project podcast won a Telly Award this year, and it is because of you and your devoted listening to this program and to our mission. I cannot say thank you enough, but I will ask one more favor. If you like what you hear, share it with your friends and your family and your colleagues. Rate it five stars and make sure that you keep on listening, gang. We've got 18 months to the next finish line, and we'll do it together. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm coming to you all solo because it's been a very busy week and we need to talk about it. I want to talk about the debt ceiling, the GOP field for 2024, and answer a question or two from you all, the listeners. But before we get into that, I just want to say thank you so much for the incredible feedback we got on our mini-series on the rise of American extremism. The feedback has been fabulous. So appreciate you all tuning in. If you like what you've heard, please share it with your friends. If you haven't taken a chance to listen to our episodes with David Nywert, Yale Eisenstadt, and Garrett Graff, please go ahead and do so. It's four terrific episodes. They are experts in their fields, and I highly recommend you give it a listen. All right, guys, let's talk about a few things. I want to talk about the debt ceiling, but before we do that, I want to talk about something that this guy, Josh Hawley, he's a senator from Missouri. He wrote this book about American masculinity, and I was struck by it because, as you all know, men of a certain age start to sort of look back on things, and the idea of a guy like Josh Hawley advising anybody on what it means to be masculine or to be a man, to oversimplify it, is a little bit ridiculous. And I think about guys like Josh Hawley, who claims to be as manly as he stands up and struts around in a too tight black t-shirt. He gives the fist pump to the January 6th protesters outside the Capitol. But when they invade the Capitol, what does he do? He literally runs. He runs through the halls to get away to save himself. Doesn't seem too manly to me. When you see a guy like Ted Cruz, who claims that his you know, pronouns are kiss my ass, and this is a man who, you know, as Donald Trump attacked his wife and has continued to belittle him, puts up with it, sucks up to him, has become a simp for the likes of not only Trump, but also the Tucker Carlson's of the world, who abases himself before the worst people on earth to feed his own ambition. That's not masculine to me. That's not manly to me. And then, of course, you've got Trump himself, who claims with all this bravado in his quote-unquote locker room talk about women and the horrible things that he's either would do to them or has now been found by a jury to have done to them. And then you see him in his guilt penthouse you know, cavorting about in bathrobes and wearing pancake makeup. Guys, this to me is not the identity of a manly man. This is a man who hides in a shell of himself 
behind a front that has worked all too well for him for 75, 77 years at this point. These are not paragons of masculinity or of manhood, either of a time gone by or in my mind today. And I think about it in the context of what it means to be a man. And nowadays, it is easy because of the environment in which we're living to say, I can be as big an asshole to whoever I want, whenever I want, because I'm a man and no one can tell me what to do. You know, guys, we used to have an expression of polite society, and that meant that there were things that maybe you thought, but you didn't say them out loud because it wasn't socially acceptable. And the rise of people like Trump and Hawley have made the things that you would say or do as a man that were unacceptable, somehow acceptable to far too many people, or at least tolerated by far too many people. And I think that it is a thing in our culture and our future. And if you are the father of sons, are these the role models you want for them? And if you're the father of daughters, are these the men you want your daughters to grow up and share their lives with and be involved with? And to me, the answer is no. Let me share an anecdote with you. You know, it's old fashioned now, but when I was in college, I attended bar at a place that no longer exists. It was called O. Henry's Back 40. And it was a dive bar par excellence. We served bad drinks. We had catfish on Fridays. The only beer we had on tap was Natural Light. It was the eminent college bar. And nights I wasn't tending bar, I would work the door, which basically meant you checked people's terrible fake IDs, and if they checked out, you let them in. One night, I think it was in the summer, we're about to close, and a guy shows up, and we'd already called last call, and we weren't going to let him in. And he says something horrible to the woman that I was working with. Barbara was her name. And she was the daughter-in-law of the lady who owned it at the time, God rest her soul. And he said something really awful to her. And I went up to this guy, and I'd been drinking too. And I said, you can't talk to her like that. And he gave me a little slap on the face. And he said, aren't you cute? What are you going to do about it? I said, and I gave him a little slap back and said, not as cute as you. Well, he responded with a Bud Light bottle over the face, which landed me in the back of someone's car bleeding and then ultimately in the back of an ambulance where I was taken to the hospital to get stitched up. And the story went around, you know, sort of our little group of friends, you know, some people were like, there's no way that this guy could have done that. Well, you know, you stood up. Barbara was like, oh my God, you stood up for me. And, you know, I don't know if I'm proud of that moment, but to me in that moment, allowing that guy to talk to her like that was unacceptable. And if it was today, I'd probably see it as unacceptable because there's nothing manly in belittling someone. And listen, I've had more than my fair share of being an asshole. Don't get me wrong. And I think about that a lot. And I think that's the other part too, which is being masculine means that you want to be your best self for you, for your family, for your coworkers, for the people that you care about and that you hope care about you. It means that when your wife needs help, you help her out. It means when your kids need that extra bit of time with their dad, you do everything you can to find it. It means showing your kids the way that you would want to be treated, that they should treat people the way you would want to be treated. I know the golden rule sounds old-fashioned nowadays, but I think too often we forget about it. And being manly does not mean picking up a gun and firing it at a case of Bud Light. Being manly doesn't mean 
strapping on an AR-15 to go to the Subway sandwich shop. Being manly doesn't mean ridiculing those who have less than you, who might be of a lower socioeconomic status than you, making fun of people who aren't responsible for whatever might have happened to them. And I just think back when to Trump, you know, ridiculed the New York Times reporter who has a physical condition. That's the antithesis of masculinity. We should not glorify that behavior. We should say that that behavior is unacceptable. Now, that doesn't mean that when the time comes, as I mentioned earlier, that you need to stand for something, that you don't stand for something. That means when the time comes, you make a judgment based on your morals and your principles, and you say, I believe that this is the right thing to do. And if it's the right thing to do, you go along with it, because if you go with your principles, win or lose, you will know you did what you needed to do at the time you needed to do it. And I think that that's one of those things that people like Josh Hawley is cynically aware of, but knows that there is too big a cohort of especially young white men in this country who are looking to be angry. They're probably angry anyway, and he is feeding them poison. He is feeding them poison just like Trump does, just like Cruz does, just like Carlson does. They do it on purpose, and it makes them even worse than we could have imagined. And so I'm sorry to digress on something, but I thought that it was important to talk about this. If you haven't had a chance, I want you to go ahead and read David French's column in the New York Times of this weekend about the same topic. He is far more erudite, far more sophisticated in his writing than I am in my own telling. But I think that it's important for those of us who can speak out about these issues. Because guys, these are fights that aren't only political, they're cultural. And cultural fights do matter because politics is downstream of culture wars. And we should not be afraid to stand up to goons like Josh Hawley. This guy isn't a man. He wouldn't know what being a man was. Time and time again, he has done the wrong thing. He has done the anti-masculine thing. And he has done it for his own ambition and his own benefit. And to me, guys, that's the opposite of being a man. All right. Now, take a deep breath, everybody. Let's talk about the debt ceiling. Okay, guys, so as of this weekend, it appears that President Joe Biden and Speaker Kevin McCarthy have made a deal on the debt ceiling. That is a good thing. If you are a Democrat and there are some things that you're upset about, I understand from a policy perspective. But there's a couple of things not getting ahead of ourselves. One, this still needs to get through a vote in the U.S. House, but it'll be interesting to see how that works because McCarthy won't be able to do it with just Republican votes. He'll need Democrats, and I believe that leader Hakeem Jeffries of the Democrats will get those votes. It's a big win for the president for a couple of reasons. One, it continues to prove that Joe Biden is something we have not seen in Washington, D.C. in a long, long time. He is a deal maker. And I know that sometimes we think of compromise as a four-letter word, but guys, compromise is governance, and governance is good because the opposite of governance is chaos and anarchy. And that's what the wackos in the Republican House wanted. That's what Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis wanted, and they didn't get it. The bigger thing is even if there are cuts to specific things or requirements or clawbacks, the truth is, guys, is that Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Paul Gosar, all of these people in the Republican House leadership, right, and they are in the leadership even if they don't have the title, they wanted to Thelma Louise the American economy. That's what they wanted. And they didn't get the chance. And if this goes through, they're not going to get the chance. And so that takes a massive issue 
off the board for the president to have to be worried about vis-a-vis a default, which would tank the economy. And it takes a massive issue off the board for Republicans being able to say that they were able to get one over on Joe Biden. Now, they'll say that anyway. But the truth is, at the end of the day, this is going to be a much bigger win for the president than it is for McCarthy. And so I think it remains to be seen how all the details will work out. But guys, this was another big test for Joe Biden and another big test that looks like he's going to pass with flying colors. We'll have more to talk about that later in the week. But I would say that for now, if this deal holds, it appears that the president has cleared yet another hurdle. And we should be thankful for that. All right. Let's turn our attention to the Republican primary field. So as I'm sure you've heard, if you follow politics at all, Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina got in the race last week. Not entirely sure what it is he wants to do, but there he is. You know, he's got about $22 million in the bank from his Senate account. So he should have plenty of money to get through, at least to Iowa. You know, look, I assume that he and both Nikki Haley, who's also from South Carolina, are assuming that South Carolina will be their redoubt, the place that they think they can win. I'm not sure they can, but that's probably the theory of the case. But obviously, on Wednesday, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, at the behest of two effete Silicon Valley billionaires, decided to do his launch in a place where no one could see him, but also it turns out that very few people could hear him. They did it on this thing called Twitter Spaces, which I could just tell you this, every time Rick and I have tried to do it, we can't make it work and we feel ourselves to be pretty accomplished both at basic technology and Twitter. And if we couldn't make it work, then hard to believe that the guy who owns the company would have much trouble, but he did. And it was 20 minutes of static and silence and things messing up. And then when they finally got it back online, it was like listening to a a shortwave radio conversation. DeSantis is going to be in the race. He'll raise a lot of money. But I would say this is that he hasn't yet made the case for why he's really any good as a candidate. And his campaign, I'll say this, not as someone who doesn't like the guy, admittedly I don't, but I'm offended as a campaign professional that they're so bad at this. And I think it goes to show you too that when you're running in a ruby red state against an also ran, who's an also ran of an also ran in 2022 and you win by 19, it doesn't tell you much of anything because you never were going to lose. And so, you know, you think you did everything right. But the truth is, is as you all probably know, and I've lost plenty of campaigns, I've always learned a heck of a lot more from the campaigns I've lost than the ones I've won, especially the ones we won going away. And I think that the DeSantis people are learning that. We also hear that the governor of North Dakota is likely to get in. I can't tell you his name now, probably won't be able to tell you his name six months from now. We have, you know, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie's talking about it. Mike Pence is talking about it. So the field is getting bigger than I thought it frankly would be. But here's the thing. Everybody's talking about how it's 2016 all over again and a bigger field will help Trump. I don't think a big field, small field thing vis-a-vis Donald Trump really matters. I think he's going to be the nominee. But here's the difference between the rest of the candidates. In 2015 and 2016, they didn't know what they were up against, right? Jeb Bush, Marco Rubio, Carly Fiorina. All of these people, they didn't know what they were up against. Now the people running against Trump do know what they're up against, but they're all too chicken shit to do anything about it, right? If you want to beat Trump, as we have shown day in and day out for three and a half years, you must stay in this man's face. You must take him to task for everything all the time. And if you're going to be one of the final people, if Trump can get beaten, you have to do it together. 
you have to make the decision that you're all going to go after him relentlessly on a daily, minute-by-minute basis, and none of them will do that. DeSantis is trying to, but he can't do it by himself. He's not talented enough. His people aren't talented enough. And I think one other thing that we should learn from 2016 is just because you have a super PAC with 100 or even $200 million in it doesn't do it, right? It doesn't do it. If your candidate can't carry the load of the campaign and the message, you could spend a billion dollars and it wouldn't matter. And so I think that the GOP field for 2024, look, thankfully, I think we'll get to at least Iowa, if not beyond. And that's good because we want these guys and these gals fighting with each other because eventually, guys, they're going to have to make a decision about who they're going to fight with. And if it's they fight with Trump, great. If it's they fight with each other, great. Because every bit of this, guys, as we've known and have said before, is when they fight with each other, none of them moderate. The MAGA train rolls in only one direction, and it's always towards darkness. It's never back towards the light. And that's what you'll see is that they're all going to chase the same 35 to 49, maybe 35 to 50 percent of the party writ large, which makes up the majority probably of the primary voters. And the truth is there's only one Trump and the rest are pretenders to the throne. Could he be beaten? Sure. Do I think it's likely to happen? I don't. All right. Let's get into some questions here and always appreciate everybody sending in your questions. Bookish Becca on Twitter asks, will Republicans be able to successfully do the standard pivot to the center for the general? They tax so extreme for the primaries now, especially for someone like DeSantis, it does not seem doable. Well, this is what I was just talking about, Bookish Becca. It's not only that they can't, it's that they don't even want to. Everything now for Republicans from Trump on down is a play to the base, and they just hope that enough vestigial and quote-unquote normal Republicans come across the line, which is why you see guys that what they say and do is always matched with Democrats are communists, they're Marxists, Joe Biden is too old, whatever thing they want to say about Ukraine or how the economy is tanking, even though it's not, they don't have the desire or the ability to go back to the middle because here's what happens. And this is what happens when you make a deal with the devil. And that's what this party has done, which is it's not like in the old days where you ran to your right or if you were a Democrat, you ran to your left in the primary. And then, yes, Bookish Becca, you were able to pivot back because you left yourself enough room to go back. Now, not only do these people not leave themselves enough room, but if they were to do that, those very same voters who helped you get through the primary will now stay home because for them, purity is the most important thing. Frankly, winning isn't even the most important thing. They want purity. Trump gives them that, and he's different because he's the leader of the movement, and the rest of these people are candidates, and they know that they have to, in some ways, out-Trump Trump. So they'll never go back to the middle. Some of them will try. Even Trump might try, but it'll be so ham-handed. And that's why people like the Lincoln Project exist, to make sure that we cut off those avenues to say, remember January 6th? Remember November 2020? Remember March 2020? Remember every day from January 20th, 2017 to the moment that Donald Trump left office? He gets back in, guys. It's worse than this. Any of these disciples get in, it's worse than this. And that's why... They won't go back to the middle, and people like us won't let them. All right, let's move on. Janine Klumpf says, I fully agree with what you all at the Lincoln Project are saying that a no-labels unity run in 2024 only helps Trump. But with that said, their movement seems to be gaining momentum, and I could see how their bipartisan unity message can be so appealing to the majority of Americans who operate in the middle for the most part. How can the message of a third-party candidate only help Trump be better sold? 
First of all, let's be clear. They don't have a movement. A movement is something that occurs naturally, that bubbles up from the ground, from the grassroots. You can't buy it. You can't create it. Their movement is a bunch of wealthy Republican donors in places like Los Angeles, New York, Dallas, and elsewhere who are being sold a vision of the world that no longer exists and is never going to exist again. The world they want is the world of George W. Bush, of a compassionate conservatism, of a world that they frankly both understood, and maybe even more importantly to them, that they singularly controlled. And they don't do that. The world as they know it, are they still largely in control of it? Yes, no question about that. But they don't control the Republican Party anymore. And that upsets them, which is why you see that they're so willing to go to Trump when it looks like he's going to be the nominee after saying, I want nothing to do with him because they want to protect their ability to do whatever it is they want, whenever they want, however they want. And I think that, Janine, this is the most important part, is why, if your house is on fire, would you say, you know what the right thing to do is now? Let's put an addition on the back. Shouldn't the most important thing for anybody who cares about the future of democracy be put the fire out? Because here's the other false equivalence is that somehow the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are equally extreme. Are there extremists on the right? Yes, a lot of them, including two of them who are running for president, one of who's already been president. Are there extremists on the left? There are, but a couple of things. There's not as many, and they don't control the party. I think that's an important thing. Joe Biden and Donald Trump are not equitable. They are not equivalent in their behavior, in their beliefs, or how they act. The Republican Party is not a pro-democracy party. It is now part of an authoritarian movement. The Democratic Party, and listen, they make me crazy sometimes too, but they're the only pro-democracy party we have left in this country. And so why would an organization knowing all those things, and if you don't believe it intellectually, you're not paying attention, still go out of their way to do this? I'm not sure. Let me talk to your piece about you know so many people in the middle. This is true, that most Americans live somewhere between, let's say, the 30-yard lines on a football field. That doesn't mean that their politics are looking for an independent. I tried, guys, to start a third party for a couple of years before we launched the Lincoln Project. And you know what I found? It's really, really hard because the two parties don't want any competition. And no one believes that voters should have more choices than me. But there's also a time and a place, which is this isn't giving voters more choices. This is pushing something that no one is really asking for into a space that they frankly don't understand. Look, I tried to help someone in 2019 do this. And you know what we found? The math doesn't add up. And let me tell you something else. Not only does the math not add up for someone who's an outsider to politics who can self-fund, it adds up even less for someone like a Joe Manchin or a Kristen Cinema who are already swamp creatures, who are already so embedded in the quasi-corruption pay-to-play environment of Washington, D.C., they don't provide anything other than an off-ramp to voters who would otherwise go to Joe Biden. And why would we want to do that? You may not like Joe Biden. You may say a lot of things about him, but I'll tell you this. The difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump in the White House is the difference between the republic continuing and the republic as we know it ending. That's as simple as it gets. And so from my perspective, they don't have the right belief system. They don't understand the world in which they're playing. They don't have a candidate that has any broad-based appeal. And I don't believe that their intentions are good. And I hate to say that. 
But until somebody shows me why they would do this now when it's not a real thing and they're only going to help Donald Trump win an election, I'm sorry. I'm not going to be for it. I'm going to oppose it. And I think that we should oppose it too. All right. Chuck Manning asks, it seems like an agreement has been reached about the debt ceiling, but it came closer to disaster than it ever has before. What can be done so that the debt ceiling cannot be weaponized again? All right. So Chuck, the debt ceiling is a figment, right? It was created, I don't even know how long ago, but it used to be, it was a pro forma thing to increase it. The truth is there's nothing in the constitution that says we need to have this. If you believe some people who read the 14th Amendment that says that by law, the United States cannot default on its debt, then maybe it's a figment anyway. It's become weaponized specifically by Republicans to score points with their base voters who are like, you know, shrink government to the size where you can drown it in a bathtub. It should be done away with, to be honest with you, because here's the thing. We are able as Americans to live the lives we want to live, even in a time of inflation that we haven't seen in decades and higher interest rates than we've seen in decades because the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency for the world. The $100 bill is still the most convertible thing on the planet. You can buy anything anywhere with it, and no one else can say that. No one else can do that. The Russians certainly can't. The Chinese can't. The Saudis can't. The Brazilians can't. Maybe the Europeans could. Right. But if it was the difference between a hundred euro note and a hundred dollar bill, they'd take the hundred dollar bill. And so what we need to do is get to a place one where, yes, we need fiscal responsibility. And for a long time, fiscal responsibility to Republicans meant if your expenditures were higher than your revenue, you either had to increase revenue, reduce expenditures or both. And now what we see with Republicans is they increase expenditures, they reduce income, right? Because they're always selling tax cuts. And then they're still hoping that some, you know, supply side economic silliness of the early 1980s, voodoo economics, as George H.W. Bush called it, will somehow come in and save the day. It doesn't work that way. And is the government like running a business? It's not. And anybody that says that knows they're lying to you. So don't believe it. But math is math. And so what we've seen is under Trump, when he had a Republican U.S. House and a Republican U.S. Senate, passed three clean debt ceiling increases and cut taxes. So they made the delta wider between how much money we spend, how much money we owe, and how much money we're bringing in. They did that on purpose because, you know what, they didn't want to take the political heat from cutting or reforming entitlements or cutting the Pentagon's budget or cutting anything that would be popular with middle-of-the-road voters. And so this is a problem that's been going on, but Republicans have exacerbated it because they're beholden to, you know, a bunch of plutocrats like Harlan Crow and the others who fund their campaigns and fund their vacations and buy their mom's houses. And they don't want the trouble. It's like Matt Gates going to a club with his dad's black card, right? It's not his credit card. It's his dad's credit card. It's not his bill to pay. He's going to go run up as much bottle service as he can. He's going to put it back in his wallet and walk home or stumble home, right? And hope that somebody else pays the bill. That is the Republican Party when it comes to fiscal responsibility nowadays. There is no fiscal responsibility. And so the debt ceiling is, I think, an anachronism, too big a sort of Damocles to be hanging over the American people. But I think that there is a time and a place probably coming sooner than later in which we're going to have to have a serious discussion about how we fund the services 
of the biggest economy in the world in a post-industrial society? Those are big questions that will have to be answered. Are they likely to be answered in the next 18 months? They're not because this is the reality we live in. That doesn't mean we don't need to do it. And will hard choices have to be made? Probably. But again, to live in a country like we do with the freedom we have for now is going to take some hard work. But I'll tell you this, having a country in which even in America, the rich are getting richer and everybody else is falling further and further behind, right? Yawning inequality does not make for political stability, right? Yawning inequality typically becomes political instability. We're politically unstable now. Do we really want more of that? I don't think we do. So from my perspective, it would be, you know, the next time the Dems are in control, say, you know what, this was a silly thing. We didn't need it in the first place. You'll probably have to do some trade-off, which is if we're not going to have a debt ceiling, we need to have some way of responsibly budgeting, right? We don't budget anymore, right? We just sort of go from year to year, hoping to God that it works out. And I'm all for the Almighty, but the Almighty, I think, has more on his mind than our balance sheet. And so I think it takes some responsibility. Again, Republicans aren't the responsible party. They're not the pro-democracy party. So for the time being, you know, we're going to have to thank people like Joe Biden for getting deals done and giving us another couple of years of breathing room till we can get through next November and say, okay, where is the new path going to lead America? Because guys, this is the one last thing and I'll finish here. The world that all of us knew, whether or not it was before 9-11, whether or not it was before Hurricane Katrina, whether or not it was before the Great Recession, whether or not it was before COVID, before Trump, that world is gone, guys, right? It's gone. It's never coming back. We are now in a turbulent period that determines which path we'll take forward. And I cannot stress this enough, guys. We get to decide the path we take forward. It is a new epoch and a new era in American history. And we have to decide what that path is going to be. If we don't proactively work for the path we want, the bad guys will do it for us. And we know what that looks like. History teaches us what it looks like. The four years of Donald Trump's presidency teaches us what it looks like. What's going on in too many southern states teaches us what it looks like. Is that the world you want for your remaining years? Is that the world you want for your kids and your grandkids? I can tell you, it's not what I want for my kids. It's not what I want for my grandkids. It's not what I want for me and my family. And so the world as it is and the world as it will be are up to us, guys. And we have to do everything we can day in and day out to make sure that we, the people, are in a position to make those decisions. All right, guys, I want to say thank you, as always, for your questions. Keep up the good work. Go to lincolnproject.us and sign up for our email list. Go to jointheunion.us and sign up for our union efforts out in the States. As always, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Until next time. Thanks again. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen, 
I'll see you on the next episode.